From the University of Notre Dame, I'm Andy Fuller. Welcome to Notre Dame Stories. Well, it's a story you might see on the news from time to time, but never quite understand the underlying issues at play. I'm talking about human trafficking. We spoke to a professor who is hoping to shine light on this topic to affect change. Here with uh, Dean Shepard, the Ray and Milan Siegfried a Professor of Entrepreneurship in uh, the Mendoza College of Business. Dean, thanks for thanks for joining us. No worries. Um, so we're talking about um, your recent study on on human trafficking, and as I was reading about it, it, it strikes me that human trafficking is one of those areas that is sort of intuitively understood. By that, I mean. I think a lot of people know that it's happening, um, but very few of us know exactly how or why. Um, so tell me the story of how you came to this subject matter and how it kind of fits into your broader area of research. Yeah. So, you know, this study actually started out by not looking for human trafficking, but just mm. finding it. Um, so, you know, I'm an entrepreneurship scholar and I've been looking at um, how entrepreneurship uh, can help people in highly adverse environments uh, deal with their lives and, and kind of earn some income, but also kind of improve the quality of their, their life. And what we did is, you know, we've looked at a number of different contexts, but one of the contexts we started to look at was um, in the sex industry. And we tried, wanted to try and understand why women would choose to enter the sex industry. Um, you know, obviously, you know, desperation from adversity in order to try and earn some income and and um, have their families survive. But what we did is we started asking uh, these women, you know, why they chose to enter the industry. Almost none of them chose it. Um, they were either tricked or sold uh, to human traffickers. Mm. And so what we did is, you know, once we started learning that, we, we very quickly changed uh, the research topic to explore you know how they were tricked and how they were trafficked and and how that how that all came apart came about. Mm-hmm. Is there a reason um, you looked at India for this study? Um, and and are there dynamics that maybe can be applied yeah. more broadly? Right. Yeah. So um, you know, one way I do my research is to try and come up with some uh, interesting topics. Is to think about me search. So things that really resonate with me, or we search. Um, and so one of the members of our research team, Vinit Parida, uh, is in Sweden, but he's uh, Indian. Mm. And so when we first got together starting doing research, um, we said, well, what's unique about our, our pairing? And, you know, I said, well, I can bring some entrepreneurship and then you can bring in, um, you know, these very resource-constrained environments in India. You know, what's, I suppose what's interesting for me is entrepreneurship research is primarily focused on um, kind of more resource-rich or resource-abundant environments. Mm-hmm. And basically, nearly everything we know is about how we have substantial resources or we can access resources or we have slack resources. Um, so most of the research is about that. Um, but I think most entrepreneurship that happens in the world is actually the opposite, you know, mm. where it's very resource constrained, very resource poor, and people are highly resourceful um, and where necessity is the mother of innovation rather than resource slack. Um, So, you know, 
we're kind of heading off in an area where research hasn't done much. Um, but interestingly, I think that's where most of the actually entrepreneurship stuff actually gets done. Mm. So that, that's the main reason, you know, it was a combination of Vinet and I and, and another guy, Joachim Vincent, um, who started working in this area. And, and that's how we came up with the, the different topics. Gotcha. So in a resource constrained environment like yeah. India, I mean, yes. that dynamic, you can think of any number of places in the world where that is Absolutely. the case, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. You mentioned um, one particular woman in the study. Uh, I'm going to pronounce her name, uh, Shrita. Uh, yeah. What is it about her story that sort of exemplifies the broader issues that you found in the course of the study? Yeah, it's, uh, um, I first want to say that it's a, a fake name, so we right, keep, of keep everybody anonymous. Um, I think we just used that quote in that the article um, in in the in the newspaper um, brief that was created, um, but in the actual research article, we have a whole whole lot of women that mm-hmm. we quote directly so she's not she's not the only one um but yeah i mean as i said from the from the very introduction um when we started expecting a certain answer and we weren't getting it we were getting a different answer it was actually quite surprising how consistent all the women were uh, in in their explanations you know uh, how they were tricked how they were entrapped how they were how they were trafficked so i don't think there was anything unique about her it was just all the women had actually very consistent stories. Mm. So, uh, so how does that happen then? You, you, you've mentioned now a couple of times that uh, that women are are tricked. How does that happen? Is it a family member? Is it um, you know someone they just kind of meet and offers them a job? What's uh, yeah. how does that work? So there were two two basic uh, uh, aspects, but it was kind of like a bait and switch, where, um, for example, a family member, often like an auntie or an uncle, would save them look, I've got a job for you in the city as a um, housemaid. Um, come with me and um, and I'll get you that job. And mm. what the, that auntie does was actually sell the girl, typically a girl, but sometimes a woman, um, to somebody, this trafficker, and then they move on. So that was one of the ways. Uh, the other way is, um, you know, a boy would pretend... Um, to fall in love with the girl, say, run away with me. They run away and he actually sells her on. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the disturbing aspects is that the family kind of had plausible deniability, um, but it's really not that plausible. You know, Mm -hmm. that I think the family know. Um, They may not not give a wink and a nod to it, but they, they kind of know. Um, and the sad thing is that in some ways the, the, the family are, are responsible for the girl leaving, you know, and in some ways they almost uh, sacrifice one child in order to kind of support uh, the others. But one of the things that entraps the women so that, 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 that they can't leave the industry is that they believe, and probably rightly so, they cannot go back to the village because they're now stigmatised that they work in the sex industry. Mm. And a stigmatization that resulted from the family's negligence from protecting these girls in the first place. So that's that in itself is a bit of a vicious cycle. Mm. Yeah, you mentioned um, being disturbed as you're as you're hearing these stories and yeah. and doing this research, and that's obviously the case. Was there anything about this that was particularly shocking to you yeah. as you were doing this research? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, 
it's all pretty shocking for a you know for a guy who lives in America who's an Australian right. and and a male. Um, the, the biggest um, shocking thing for me was that these women, after being um, tricked, drugged, raped, and then forced into the sex industry, eventually they start to get given more autonomy, but then they have no choices of where to go. And eventually these women, as they get older, become recruiters themselves. Hmm. And so the most disturbing thing is that it becomes a vicious cycle that these women, these women are tricked and trapped um, and, you know, all their autonomy is taken away. They're forced into this industry. But then those women or those girls, as they grow up to be women, actually start recruiting new women and they become the traffickers. So it's like the victim um, starts to engage in victimising others. And uh, that, that part in particular is disturbing. Do you have any insight in, into to why that is? Is it just because um, in a way it's kind of all they know and yeah. they're perpetuating it? Yeah. So in some ways I think, you know, it's almost like they get brainwashed. Mm. Uh, so they they're, they're actually kind of get reprogrammed. So they say, well, you know, you used to think you have agency. You don't have any ability to make any decisions about your life. And then eventually they start to be given some autonomy, but only within the, the industry in which they're uh, involved. And then, you know, if they could escape, where would they escape to? Um, they can't escape back to the village. They can't get other jobs. So there are some NGOs, non-government organisations now that are trying to help these women escape and, and kind of start a new life, but they really don't have many. And then it's also a little bit like, um, you know, we went through all this and we survived why can't you? Mm. So yeah, I mean, it, it, it's something happens in the change of their of their brain, really, and the, the way that they think um, that kind of allows them to survive, and that also um, allows them to then go and try and attract these other people into the into the industry. When it comes to addressing it, I'm just thinking broadly here. Um, there's probably two areas: one, caring for the for the victims who who somehow make it out, uh, but yeah. then also addressing sort of the larger structural cultural issues um, yeah. that can play a role in prevention. Um, yeah. Your study mentioned uh, an NGO based intervention that yeah. uh, seemed to be successful. T- tell me about that. Yeah, so we we spoke with these guys. I think they were um, uh, I think they were priests, one from Australia and one from New Zealand, believe it or not. Hmm. Um, and that they created a, um, an organisation in the red light area where they would help women who were either discarded from the, the sex industry. Because I kept asking them, okay, what do they do when they get old enough? And and there was no real answer. And I think the answer is, you know, they just don't survive, unfortunately. Mm. Um, So in this uh, NGO, the women were actually engaged in some form of um, tapestry, um, tapestry work and making clothes. And then the NGO would sell the clothes to fund um, the continued operation of that particular business. So the women actually lived there, ate there. Um, and so they worked, um, and they were able to kind of well, survive uh, mm. after, after that. Um, you know, I think about this myself, you know, I, I kind of do my research more at the individual level 
and, uh, you know, maybe groups. And I think this requires some uh, some substantial uh, institutional change. Mm-hmm. And so I, I don't have very good answers for it other than to say um, I don't think we can change an industry unless we understand it. So hopefully this research, while it can't tell us how to change it, at least we're starting to understand it. Right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if I had to guess, I think it has to do with if we can remove poverty, which is itself such a huge thing, but right. if the villages um, can have less poverty, then they're going to be less likely to sacrifice uh, women. Um, you know, education would have to be a big part of that. So if we educate people that here are the tricks that people engage in um, in order to trick people into this industry, um, then that would be one thing. You know, another thing might be if we can try and create these social norms where we don't stigmatise women who are tricked into this industry but mm-hmm. realise, one, that they were tricked into it and that they're a victim and we shouldn't stigmatise victims, that'll allow people to escape and maybe go back to their villages and go back to their families. Um, but, yeah, I mean, these are big structural things Um and unfortunately, you know, I can see how people can find a way out maybe, um, but I, it's, it's hard to think about how to kind of structurally change all of these aspects. You know? Right. Or And even if you, you can, it's certainly not something that can be done overnight. Um, you're right. talking about societal change, which is exactly. a, a large yeah. ship to turn. Absolutely. What do you hope... Um, and maybe you've already answered this in part, but what do you hope is the main outcome of this work? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's hopefully what we were just talking about, that we can understand this process a little bit better. Um, and so perhaps other researchers will all start, also start researching it. Perhaps people who have a public policy perspective or sociologists or educationalists or even, even um, politicians in mm. Um, developing countries and kind of engages in kind of education. So hopefully someone gets in there and can use what we've done as a small step towards a deeper understanding of where we can change the uh, the kind of structural issues that, that lead to this. And so in, in this way, we can kind of move towards um, helping at least some of the some of the people either avoiding getting into it or helping people get out of it. Dean Shepard, thank you for your time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Notre Dame Stories. In our next episode, we'll take you back across the pond for a look at how Notre Dame students are experiencing London. Notre Dame Stories is produced by the Office of Public Affairs and Communications. I'm your host, Andy Fuller. Our music is by Alex Mansour.